There's two Bible readings this morning. Um, The first one is Colossians chapter 3, and it's verses 1 to 11. And then I'll go straight into Mark 15, verse 21. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. There is... There, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you've already been told, this is about cross and identity, and it's part of a series that we're running at the moment. Um, And there's nothing really like jumping in the deep end, is there? So I've got a question for you. Who are you? Now, I don't mean your name. I mean, what defines you? What makes you? You. Many of us define our uh, identity by our parents, and maybe at some point you've watched the BBC One programme, Who Do You Think You Are? How many people have watched that? Probably everybody has, even if they were only channel hopping at the time, because it's been on for 15 series. Um, And it goes through uh, these famous people and what their forebears were and tells a story out of it and tracks them. And tracing your ancestry is, of course, really, really popular these days. And if you look at Ancestry.com on Alexa, it's one of the world's most popular websites. Now, my mother was really into Ancestry as well. She, she absolutely loved it when she was alive. And even my, my dad got sort of caught up into that because my mother is, is Welsh and my father is English. And that was never a problem until Rugby International Day when England were playing Wales and all of a sudden we were a house divided And um, as for me and my younger brother, um, we had to make up our minds. It really was make your mind up time. 
So I decided that because I was born and bred in England, um, that I was English, you know, so um, my brother, just to be different, he wanted to be Welsh. So um, anyway, we didn't come to blows, but my mum used to sit on the settee watching the two of us and, uh, and kicking the ball for, the, uh, for them as well. Anyway, that you, it was a sight. Now, I, oh, I should have said, <laughs> I've, I've also been to Cardiff Arms Park as well because I actually went to college in, in Wales and, uh, and I must be one of the only Englishmen to sit in a Welsh, entirely Welsh stand and sing the English national anthem, <laughs> God Save the Queen. Uh, you could have heard a pin drop. It was one of the loneliest experiences of my life. Anyway, so back to that searching question, just who are you? And importantly, how does that relate to your faith? Now, earlier this morning, well, just just a minute or two ago, we read a couple of scriptures. And one was a single verse in Mark's Gospel, that, um, that we're going to start with that, because it's absolutely fascinating if you look into it. Because Mark there introduces us to a character called Simon the Cyrenian, or Simon of Cyrene. And he was in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, like many other pilgrims that day for Passover. So Simon has innocently travelled through the Garden Genath Gate. He's going into Jerusalem with the crowds, basically. Um, And he encounters a crucifixion party who are going against the traffic the other way. And that contained three condemned prisoners and a bunch of Roman soldiers, one of whom is a centurion. And just as their paths cross... Jesus collapses under the weight of the cross piece that's called the patibulum that all condemned prisoners were told that they had to carry, they were forced to carry it. Not the upright, incidentally, in the traditional picture of Jesus hauling his cross, um, to, you know, sort of with a proper cross shape, that didn't happen. But they were forced to carry this huge beam that weighed between 30 and 50 kilograms, according to historians. That really is quite a weight. Um, It was me struggling around two months ago in the ice, carrying a 10-kilogram bag of rock salt for our drive and barely making it. And three to five times that weight was what Jesus had to carry, having been bleeding. And the centurion has got two problems here. He's the guy in charge, of course. Firstly, there's a question of time, because he's got to get them crucified and dead by sundown of that day. So there's a time pressure because of the religious holiday. But the other problem is that if Jesus dies en route, it's his responsibility and his fault, because his job was to inflict a painful, prolonged death on anyone condemned to death. So he plays his ace. Roman soldiers were allowed to commandeer any civilian and press them into service. So the centurion picks on Simon, points to the crossbeam and says, you, pick it up. So Simon sensibly does as he's told. 
turns round, goes out the way he came, up quite a formidable slope and back out of the gate. So who's Simon? Well, Simon's a, a Greek name, but it's actually very popular amongst Jews in the old Greek empire because of its similarity to the Jewish name Simeon. He came from a smallish North African port called Cyrene. It's just inside modern-day Libya, and it's a mere thousand miles overland from Jerusalem. It's not exactly a day trip. Now, maybe he just came from there and he was living closer at the time, but a man with that sort of background attending Passover means that he's probably a convert to Judaism, but he might have been Jewish. So here's this man. He's the last word in multicultural identity. He's probably black. I haven't got time to defend that, but there are two reasons. He's likely to be either Jewish or a Jewish convert. He hails from the North African coast in a Greek colony in, within the Roman Empire. And here he is at a Jewish festival in Jerusalem. And his two sons have got non-African names. One is Rufus, that's a Latin name, means red. And the other is Alexander after Alexander the Great. But whatever Simon considers his identity is... It's about to change forever through this chance encounter with Jesus. And their eyes just must have met as Jesus has collapsed on the floor, bearing this enormous chunk of wood. What did he see in Jesus' look? Not despair. Not fury. Gratitude? Likely. Determination? Quite possibly. Dignity, for sure. And he accompanied Jesus all the way to Golgotha. It's not a long journey, actually. It's only just outside the walls. But how long did he hang around afterwards? We're never told. Did he stay to watch? Did he read the signboard above Jesus, the titular so-called King of the Jews? He must have. Did he watch while he was draped in purple and mocked? What did he make of the crown of thorns around him? And did he hear Jesus say the words, Father, forgive them? Simon could have shrugged and put it down to a really bad day and got on with his life. But it obviously made an impression And this accidental encounter with the cross turned into a pivot point in his life. And he evidently became a disciple of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, because of Mark's throwaway comment that identifies Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. How would he know if he was just an anonymous character walking by? How would he even know Simon's name for that matter? And why would he mention it in his written letter unless these guys, Simon and Rufus, sorry, not Simon and Rufus, Alexander and Rufus, were known to his readership or his immediate intended readership in the early church? 
fact, if we dig a bit further, a, a Rufus and his mother do turn up in uh, the greetings in Romans 16 in the Roman church. Now, it might be coincidence, but given Mark's link to Peter and Peter's to Rome, it's very plausible that it's the same Rufus. And here's the punchline. That through this life-changing event, Simon's immediate family all came to faith in Jesus. And that day, or pretty soon after, the old Simon with his complicated identity died. And a new Simon emerged with a new identity thanks to this extraordinary collision with the cross. So we come full circle to our original question. Who are you? Where do you get your identity from? I don't think it's too controversial if I put it to you that the human heart craves a home. It's a fundamental core need at the very depth of us. And if it's thwarted, there's a problem. And that's why we have this phrase, identity crisis, which can be many and various. But if, even if there is no crisis, identity can be really complex. We can define ourselves by any number of things. Favourite ones are our country of birth, our parentage or perhaps our skin colour, our gender or sexuality, our job or education level, our money and possessions, all lack of them, our generational age bracket. So are you Gen X? Are you Gen Y? Are you millennial? Are you... Are you a boomer like me? Or our religion, as we were poignantly reminded just a week ago in Christchurch, New Zealand. And these differences divide us. They, it may divide us into cliques on the petty end of the spectrum. Or it can divide us into warring tribes or warring nations, literally, on the other end. But whether it's the, the petty end or the deadly end still adds up to us and them. But that's not the sort of Christian identity Paul wants for us in our Colossians passage in chapter 3. Christian identity is not about pinning a fish badge on our lapels or wearing a cross. It's far deeper than that. And if we look at the Colossians passage, the most significant phrase is found in verse 3. You died. That's as fundamental as it gets. If we switch uh, letters for a second, in Galatians 3, Paul says this. I have been crucified with Christ. There's that cross again. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life, life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And for us too, personal crucifixion is part of the deal. Death is a choice that we all make when we come to Christ. Believe it or not, you don't hear much about it, but it is. It's what baptism is all about. Down into a watery grave and then up again into new life, lived in a totally new way. On the face of things, when you're baptised, 
What changes? Not a lot. You eat, you sleep, you go to the same job the next day, you're married to the same person, if of course they'll have you. But inside, everything changes. And that's why it's never just a lapel badge, just pinned to the outside. It's true, of course, that what's on the inside eventually seeps out. And some of that becomes visible and immediately and gloriously on day one. But this passage deals with the lifelong process of renewal that follows. And please note, it's not automatic. Did you notice in verse 10, the new self is being restored to the image of its creator? It's an ongoing process, like the restoration of an ancient master's painting. Slowly, painstakingly, the black and the grime are being removed. Our being, it's ongoing. Because although we're God's masterpieces, did you know you were God's masterpiece? You are. The cleanup process requires our cooperation. It requires our intention, our will, our focused effort to remove, well, what's the black that's mentioned? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, that's pretty catch-all. Greed, anger and rage, malice and slander, bad language and lies. And when I was a younger Christian, I used to moan that preachers would always tell you what to do, but they'd never tell you how. Well, put the moans away because this is the how part. Because the driving force, the engine for our ongoing transformation is to live with our faces constantly to heaven. Have you ever watched one of these nature programs where they follow a flower, a sunflower or something like that, and they, they do time lapse through the day and you watch the flower, it kind of keep, it follows the sun round during the day before it kind of folds up and uh, goes to bed for the, for the night. But that's kind of like us. We need to be Christ-focused. So we're always asking, how would Jesus view this? What would Jesus do in my shoes here and now? We have to make a practice of asking those questions until they become a part of our thinking, a part of our personality. And incidentally, if we ever give up asking those questions, we will revert to type, we'll go backwards. Most summers, um, Judith and I go to to New Wine and, and I delve into the shed and I pick out my solar panel. It's a small portable one and I get it out and I dust it off and I make sure it's working and I plug it in and the charge is zero. Nothing. Because it's not being exposed to the sun all year but we, our souls are like solar batteries, like that. They have to be regularly charged by exposure to the sun, S-O-N. They have to be. They just don't stay charged indefinitely. We need renewal. 
And we can freewheel for a while, but it doesn't last for long. In conclusion, all followers of Jesus stand on the same ground. It doesn't matter where your parents come from, what your educational background is. It doesn't matter. We all come via the cross of Jesus and we have to commit to a cross of our own as well. None of us can live as we used to. Secondly, being in Christ trumps every other identity that we have. One of the things I really love about church is the mix of backgrounds, because in my view, this is a little foretaste of heaven. You know that in heaven, you will rub shoulders with people of every tribe and language. And we are family. It doesn't matter where we're from. We are blood relatives. His blood. We're blood relatives. Thirdly, in Christ, the only divisions are the ones that we make artificially. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. Those were the social divisions of the day. We have ours. We've named a few of them already this morning. We can add our own modern ones. But God doesn't do favoritism. And we stand together before the cross with our new ID as equals, as children of the Father. So here's a parting challenge for us. Do I consider myself a dual national. It's not a problem with English and Welsh because they're under the same government at the moment. (laughs) So are we a citizen of the earth and a citizen of heaven as well? Who should be? If I do, is my primary citizenship, my real identity, is it in heaven Or are we earthbound? Do we like it just a little bit too much and conform just a little bit too much? Because if that's the case, then that will require me to consciously live here as an expat. Is heaven your heart's true home? I hope so. Because if that's genuine, when the day comes to say goodbye to this earth and that day will come then at last you will be going home where you belong Amen Let it be for all of us